Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye. And you may have noticed that last week we didn't have a new episode. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that and just say that, you know, I was in full prep for a TED talk that I recorded uh, for the University of Bristol. Um, And therefore, I just needed to be in the TED Talk zone. Um, So I really appreciate your patience and your support. And I hope that when this TED Talk is out, I will be telling you more about it on the podcast and you can have a listen. But yeah, I hope you got to listen to old episodes or perhaps there's still some you want to catch up on. So um, thank you for bearing with me. Now, I am back this week with a lovely guest, Jake Gifford. He is a fellow personal trainer. He's also a PhD researcher and he... Jake and I have worked together a few times and he is just one of the smartest people I know and I I do think that really comes across in our conversation today. Um, Jake's really fantastic at looking at big pictures, looking at all aspects of topics and you know he's fairly analytical so he, he, he kind of just yeah, he, he, he sees a lot. He's done a lot of research. He's He knows his stuff. So we're really lucky to have Jake on the podcast today. And I wanted to answer the question, as you can see by the title of the episode, you know, are calories on menus helpful or harmful? And I should say that we're discussing that topic as well as other public health policies. Um, and just generally like, yeah, this big, this big topic of kind of like, how do we get people just beyond ourselves as individuals fitter and healthier and you know what other things at play there and why is it different for certain people than it is for others and we get into it um so I hope we answer that question for you today because I know this has been a hot topic here in the UK especially and I know that I'm sure in other countries around the world wherever you are listening um this may have been a topic that has come up too so I really hope you enjoy listening to that so of course before we get into the episode I just want to remind you that there are still just a few spaces left now for the UK train happy retreat happening in the Peak District in August from the 21st sorry the 20th I should say to the 22nd of August if you want to find out about the retreat you can head to the show notes where I have linked to my website giving you all the information about the retreat there and then of course guys it is time for train happy trooper of the week This week's train happy trooper is listener Rhea and Rhea got in touch via Instagram actually and she sent in two train happy moments so we've got a double whammy here. The first one she says I hurt my back quite badly a few weeks ago and it was so bad I could hardly walk properly for the first few days. Not wanting to do any more damage I gave myself permission to rest as long as I needed. After two and a half weeks off today I went back to the gym. I took it easy I didn't go too heavy or fast and I checked in with my body to see how my back felt. It feels so much better and I'm so happy I haven't pushed myself too far. And the second train happy moment, this is one I really loved and I think is very topical right now. My friend's birthday was this weekend and she had a hot tub party in her back garden. My friendship group is one that often talks about diets, weight and appearance etc. And as we would all be in bikinis for this party, I was dreading the body image conversations that would come up. But to my delight, there was no mention of diet culture or how we looked in our bikinis, only good vibes and lots of cocktails. Very happy indeed. 
so Ria thank you so much for sharing those with us and I think it's so lovely when yeah we have more important things to talk about than what we look like you know we do we really really do so thank you so much for sharing that with us of course if you want to share your train happy moment and be train happy trooper of the week on the podcast then you can get in touch email us trainhappypodcast at gmail.com or you can do what Rhea did and direct message us on the train happy podcast instagram you can find us at train happy podcast and yeah make sure you're checking out that page anyway for extra content bonus episodes flashbacks we're trying to give it to you all over there all right okay enough from me it's time to chat with jake i really hope you enjoy this one i feel like you're gonna learn something um so yeah here is jake Jake, welcome to the Train Happy podcast. Uh, thank you so much for making time for me today. You're a busy man. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? And thank you for having me on. I'm really good. I'm really good. The sun shines out today. I'm feeling very optimistic about summer actually arriving. Um, and yeah, it's amazing what a bit of vitamin D can do, isn't it? You know, just kind of makes you feel a bit more, yeah, just excited for life. I don't want to jinx it, but yeah, it feels so much better. I mean, it's been so wet the past few weeks, but it is what it is. It's British weather for you. It is. It is. So you are a fellow personal trainer and we've had the opportunity to work together before. And I just really um, admire you. I've learned a lot from you. Um, You're not just a personal trainer. You're also doing a PhD. So... Can you, yeah, explain what, A, how you balance that, because I do think that's incredible, and B, uh, what your PhD is in? Um, so if we start with balancing, I mean, I wouldn't say I get it perfect. I wouldn't say I'm the best person to, to ask in terms of work-life balance. I mean, I do try and set, boundaries to, to some degree with with work and stuff like that um luckily obviously working as a pt and working yourself you're quite i can be flexible with time um particularly for things like meetings with with university um and so on and so forth and podcast recordings, recordings. <laughs> yes um and then the phd is part-time it isn't full-time so um whilst i say there isn't a full on pace there's still this i i kind of do somewhat treat it occasionally as 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 full time so a lot of time it all might be penciling out time to read it might be penciling time into to write um or or to learn um i kind of go with with whatever mood i am into degree so for example i might have a few hours set time to to write but if it's not, if I'm stuck, I'm not going to agonise over trying to write stuff. Um, I'll go back to reading and things like that and, or doing other things. Um, quite conveniently, I'm doing what's essentially a systematic review. So it's where you collect, it's like a review of, of a number of studies. So a lot of it involves kind of step-by-step protocol, which is, it's traditionally done so you can find one on the internet and you can follow what people have previously done in terms of how they report systematic reviews um so it's quite easy in the sense that i can go okay i'm going to do this section today i'm going to fill out these tables or i'm going to do some of these tables today and, and so on and so forth um so and obviously a topic a topic Oh, so what is the what is the overarching topic? What are, what other studies that you're looking into? Like, what's the systematic review going to be about? So, okay, so the broader the broader topic in general is I'm kind of looking at weight science, like critical weight science, and looking at the, the weight and understanding experience perspectives and physical activity experiences of fat people, but. What I'm also using is I'm drawing from um, intersectionality. So looking at the way other identities and, and power relations might intersect to create 
different experiences and meanings. So in the context of this systematic review, your idea is that you're understanding, okay, there are, however, 19, 20 studies of, of uh, fat people's experiences uh, of physical activity, whether it's in physical activity interventions, whether it's policy, whether it's um, weight loss interventions with physical activity component. So just to bear in mind that I've not produced these studies, that these studies are somewhat other people produce, and I'm currently looking, seeing what's out there and what, what, what's missing. And then you're trying to identify and go, well, okay, then, um, obviously, fat people don't aren't a homogenous group. They don't experience physical activity all the same way. There are various different identities that intersect to create different meanings. So, for example, things like age, gender, um, race, uh, kind of um, socioeconomic status, so income and education, um, and looking at whether the, these things might impact and, and shape these experiences. And the idea is that you better understand these people and their experiences, what they find good, what they find good, what, what their values are, what it means to them, um, what might what might be their barriers. And then the idea is that you can then use that information to essentially support these people um, better, whether it's producing policy or interventions um, to improve their experiences or kind of support people to be more active. Um, so, I mean, the systematic review is kind of looking at that. And then from that point on, then there might be stuff that's, that's missing that we then kind of look at on a broader basis. So again, a lot of it's kind of qualitative work. So what I mean by that is, is going to be much more looking at kind of interviews and interviewing people than working in a lab um, and kind of going really from there. hearing people's lived experiences and actually what exercise has been like for them and what, what those, you know, what their stories are, which I think sometimes when we th talk about studies and stuff, and I know that people, you know, in academia, like, do take on, you know, do interview participants and, and do take on their feedback as part of their research. But I think it's, yeah, it's really important to include that sometimes because do you, do you feel that sometimes people get really bogged down in like the numbers and the data and they forget that they're actually thinking about human beings and that, you know, we need to, to value um, experience and perspective as well? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's that to some degree, there's a little bit of elitism and, and sneering in academia in some academic circles, not all, um, about kind of like qualitative research, because some people deem it as not real science, because it doesn't follow necessarily the scientific method, which looks at kind of, or, or produce, you produce a hypothesis and you test that hypothesis. But the problem is that you can kind of get bogged down all, all the data, all the quantitative data, all the numbers and stuff like that, and then say, oh, we need to do this, that, and the other. And then when people don't do that, they get kind of get frustrated. So I always say that quantitative, qualitative, mixed method research, I wouldn't say there's one that's better than another. There are some that are better at answering certain questions. So you reframe it. I mean, I don't know whether you've seen it or, or, or people listening seen it. You might see on social media, people started using that pyramid of quality of evidence and they put randomized control tiles at the top and then kind of anecdotes at the bottom. I kind of find that quite unhelpful because randomized control tiles can only answer certain questions and qualitative and case studies answer different questions or, or kind of produce different they're answers. They're all valid, aren't they? They all have their place. Mm -hmm. And the idea that like one is inherently better than the other is, is unhelpful. Yeah, they're, they're essentially pros and cons. So... Um, I mean, if you if you want to find the the effectiveness of an intervention of the drug trial, you might you might obviously put RCTs at the top. But if I want to find the experiences of or the barriers and facilitators of someone to be physically active, I might then say, well, RCTs aren't really going to answer that question. So I'm going to then do some something like ethnography or, or some qualitative method to to gain that. So I kind of really kind of think of it as a more of a circular motion, so or, or more of a circle, and find out well, okay, what question am I trying to answer? What do I need? To, what method do I need to answer that question? Um, 
and then kind of go from there. So I wouldn't never say I put one on top of the other, but I would prioritize one if I was trying to, depending on the question. Um, but yeah, the whole point was, I guess, from my own experience and, and kind of listening is, is there's a lot of this conversation uh, of about um, oh, this, why this works or, or talks about looks about interventions, looks about qualitative data and people like to share that and stuff like that. And for example, like the benefits of physical activity and like a lot of people do know that benefits of physical activity, I mean, some of them aren't particularly well reported or, or sometimes they're exaggerated. But I guess the curiosity is, is why aren't people physically active? What are their experiences? Why do people struggle with it? The idea is that you want to either improve their experience or so on and so forth. The, the problem for, for public health or, or interventions isn't to kind of isn't people's lack of knowledge about the health benefits of physical activity it's getting them active um and yeah, there's so various, there's various reasons are at play so i'm curious you've obviously gone into this research like looking at physical activity but am i right in saying it started for you like being a personal trainer and having your own experience with fitness and that's kind of led you to wanting to do a phd in it so how did you even get started in fitness as a whole? And um, how did you become a personal trainer? And how have you evolved as a personal trainer since you started? Um, however many years ago? Uh, so I've been in, what was it, the fitness industry? Okay, I'm working in the fitness industry for a decade now. Um, I think, yeah, decade. Uh, before that, I was obviously grown up. I, w- I wouldn't say I was the most sport. I, I did do sports. Did a, did a variety of sports throughout my youth um, and kind of my dad was my dad was also a bodybuilder and powerlifter so didn't necessarily always compete but I also there were some occasions where I went to bodybuilding gyms and saw him was kind of familiar with those with those areas um, I kind of remember distinctly remember me and my friend never saying that we'd join a gym because we didn't see the point bear in mind it was 16 and naive at the time um I think it was 16, yeah. And then it kind of there was a there was a little bit of a switch. So um, well, two two I say two life events probably happened to me quite a lot. First one, um, I was assaulted in broad daylight when I was 16. Um kind of it was just out of the blue, it was completely unexpected. Um I thought the guy had a knife, so it was kind of like, oh, I'm not gonna try and escalate situation and I think the friend I was with at the time that was during that experience then decided that I actually wanted to join the gym whether that's because of his own experience of, of the assault us not directly involved in it um, it might have been it might not have been so obviously joined the gym when I was 16 kind of somewhat hooked uh, on it because of the physical benefits that I or, or the progress that I was seeing. Uh, and then the second one, originally I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. Um, but when, yeah, when I was 16, I think it was, yeah, it was 16. Um, I, I think way t- two months into my A-levels, I was hit by a motorbike. So I know, so two things happened. You had a very... Eventful 16, 16. I know. I was like, I know, and I was involved. It was the same friend involved. So I said, I said, next oh. year probably gonna kill me, but no. Um, so yeah, to the point that obviously I broke my leg and became. I lost a lot of impairment. Couldn't walk for six months. Um, and it's to the point that actually went from being someone who's quite independent, did their own thing, a lot of time, to someone who couldn't physically go up to get a glass from the um kitchen so that point on my my life kind of rerouted so i had to take a lot of time off and then kind of got to the point that i knew i wasn't going to get the grades that i would get to get into mechanical engineering because i was playing catch up um i was using the gym a lot for my own re- rehabilitation um, and someone I met there who interestingly owns the, who's a friend now, a good friend now, and owns the gym that I currently work at. Was like, well, why don't you go into fitness? And so I did, and I kind of stuck at it ever since. Um, 
so that's kind of how I started and I kind of obviously got into it and I felt perhaps I still wanted to go to university so I, I went into my undergrad whilst working um, full time completely undergrad and then kind of felt a little bit hungrier and then kind of slowly progressed because I was more curious about uh, questions with regards to behaviour and kind of wanting to essentially improve my, improve my own practice and I saw university as a, as a way to to develop my, my skills and the benefit that I gained from university through my undergrad just meant that I went to pursue a master's um, and I guess from there it was kind of I, I, I enjoy research I enjoy asking questions I enjoy, enjoy that environment but I also enjoy working with people as well so it was kind of that balance um, and I guess since from like working for nearly a decade well it's a decade now um, with people that actually it was kind of more questions that I wanted answering which was why I kind of went with PhD because I wanted to learn more to better support people I mean, there's, there's, I guess there's a, from observation, there's a lot of mentality that, that if people aren't doing something, then it's their fault as opposed to perhaps the coach's fault or, or people, uh, there are people around me or, or, or from observations where coaches would often blame clients for, for not doing something, not engaging in a behavior and so on and so forth. Whereas for me, I was like, well, actually, is it them or is there some or is there an alternative way or is there an issue that needs or a problem that needs solving rather than just making assumptions and that's and really so interesting because kind of yeah. I wanted to talk to you about that because I do think there's a lot of conversation in fitness that and and I think it, it's something that is part of that diet culture gaslighting really where when things aren't going the way maybe a personal trainer intends or the diet isn't working you know the and how they thought it's always you know the client's lazy they don't stick to the workouts they don't follow the meal plan they're not sending me my the pictures or whatever it is and there's a lot of um you know oh it's it's just as easy as calories in calories out if you just do this then voila you can achieve the results you want to achieve and what I'm hearing you say and and I feel that what you're trying to kind of work on is saying well hang on a second there's more at play here there are more there's more involved than just this individual person and their individual behaviors and that there may be reasons greater reasons beyond a person's individual control as well that mean that they yeah that they are the way they are what what are your um thoughts on that so so yeah it's there's a there's a common assumption that we're complete well that we are autonomous individuals that have control over our own fate that we choose what we put in our mouths that we choose um what whether we take the stairs or not we choose what we read choose who we hang out with choose our work so on and so forth um i'm seeing that's often reflected in kind of things like the policies um with regards to health it's also reflected in kind of the language that that, pe that people use and it's kind of um a really kind of narrow way of way of thinking um because it whilst there are lots of kind of theories and, and, and about behavior, a lot of them do assume that there are no external forces that might influence. And we know from, from various kind of research and, and reports going back decades. So for example, um, one review that I talk about is in the UK is the Marmot Review. Before that, there was the the Black Report uh, in the eighties. So I mean, several several decades. Like um, Fifty years. 50 yeah. Years of work. Like so, highlighting uh, that actually, <laughs> yeah, 
No, actually, um, mm, this personal response, this personal responsibility model might not actually be best for everyone. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not to say that autonomy, autonomy doesn't exist. But, but I really, I want to kind of talk about that point home because I see. There's lots of rebuttals to discussions about social determinants of health. So obviously social determinants of health are the, the conditions that we're born, live and work in and how they influence our health and influence the, our decision-making and our behaviours. But it's not that, I mean, they. everyone, doesn't matter who they are or where they're born, does have a certain level of determination. But... I mean, there are external forces which do disproportionately impact different people, whether it's based on their gender, race, um, socioeconomic status, ability or disability. Um, and I don't think it's helpful to admit that or kind of gloss over them and say, don't focus on what you can't control, focus on what you can. Um because it essentially kind of almost gaslights or ignores that the, these structural factors that, that do need to be addressed and, or at least acknowledged. Um, so, I mean, it's not, it, it, I wouldn't say it's just fitness that has, has that problem. I'd say a lot of healthcare has that issue too. In medicine, they don't get particularly taught about social factors or a lot of people within medicine don't understand um how to address or implement or how they might influence them um so they either just avoid them altogether or lightly touch upon them and acknowledge them and don't go anything beyond that oh of course kind of structural factors influence but only we can't control them so best not best focus on what we can control but i mean from the decision from physical activity to what we put in our mouths, some there are structural factors which which influence those decisions. So, I mean, you can bury your head in the sand all you want, but they're not going to go away that way. Um, and I think they're important to address. Well, let's pick up on what we put in our mouths because one of the key things that people have been asking from my opinion on and wanting us to discuss on the podcast was one of the kind of latest government policies is that we are going to be having calorie labeling on all menus i think it's from april 2022 um and this is part of the government's strategy to tackle obesity um and you know there's been a lot of you know expected kind of criticism of this policy um and I, I guess the, the kind of rationale behind it is, well, if people just know what they're eating, then they'll make better choices and then they'll choose this. And, you know, they'll, they'll make sure they choose the healthy option. And that if they just know, then, then they can choose. But um, it's not necessarily as we're kind of, as we're kind of um, alluding to, it's not as simple as that. <laughs> and there are these other factors at play. So when you saw the government announce that they are going to be doing this, putting the calories on menus, what were your, what was your kind of initial reaction? And, and have you had any subsequent thoughts about, you know, whether this is helpful or not, and, and whether calories on menus do have a, have a role and, and can have a place? Um, so, I mean, the first time, I mean, the first time I saw the glimpse of all, all their policies, I guess the first thing was a, it was a massive eye roll because the, these policies that have been discussed and, and potentially implemented are, are nothing new. Um, the US already does it. Um, and a number of kind of organizations and restaurants do it over here. It's not, not all of them, but a number of them. Um, and it's just another one of those neoliberal policies where, like you said, it is fundamentally, we don't really want to um, control people that much. We want around to make their own decisions and so on and so forth, because we don't want to be considered nanny, uh, a nanny state and so on and so forth. Um, but the problem is, is with policies like this, 
is they ignore things like who goes to these restaurants. They ignore things like um, who might be negatively impacted by these, um, what evidence there is that they they do actually have a positive impact. Um, I mean, in the US, there, is, there isn't any evidence as far as I'm aware. Um, and I know that the individual policies aren't necessarily designed to turn the tide. But for example, things like the sugar tax, the difference was with that one is, is they actually reform it. There was actually a strong change in the reformulation of, of sugary drinks, which actually had a favorable outcome on health, on health irrespective of weight. So, I mean, the, these policies have been around and circulated and it's, they are quite myopic, again, the way that they view weight, which is, oh, it's all about calories, calories you put in, calories you expend. Um, and that's what we have to then deal with. Where I know that some people have mentioned that, oh, they might find it useful. Um, I mean, some people find it, might find it, something helpful to them if they're already calorie counting anyway um, and they perceive that to be beneficial or you might find that some actually to some extent there are, there are kind of type 1 and type 2 diabetics that might, that might find, find it makes them easier to go to restaurants and, and worry less obviously like I mentioned before what, what tends to be happening is that there are unintended consequences or in this case there's there's little regard to those with with eating disorders who essentially are negatively impacted by this um and also don't necessarily have the resources to get appropriate treatment i mean a lot of people don't have either you have to go privately and not a lot of people can afford that or because it is multidisciplinary and, and, and quite intensive or there is just no support on the NHS in the, in the UK. Um, and I think, again, what, what tends to happen with these, with, these, uh, with these policies for obesity is that they're kind of cherry-picked and they kind of pick and mix and they're kind of still based on um, kind of political views as opposed to what the evidence is, what, what harms might it cause are there on any alternate alternatives to improving the health of the nation whether i mean no one politically has the hunger or the desire to address inequalities um at the moment so it becomes these these the same old policies that that kind of get rehashed or, or suggested i mean they're nothing new i mean the same same thing with bariatric surgery I mean, it, they talk about bariatric surgery and they obviously, and the other thing was commercial weight loss services. So they pumped a hundred million into commercial weight loss services. So Weight Watchers and, and, and Slimming World. Um, and obviously Weight Watchers and Slimming World would probably just rub their hands together like great. Um, but the reality is that it doesn't do anything. There, is, there isn't a net positive effect on, on people's health and wellbeing. From, the, from these large-scale policies. I mean, you always get anecdotes. You always get individuals saying this, that, and the other. And, and you always get people on, online saying, oh, this will help me. Um, particularly with, with, with things like calorie counting. But it's kind of, it's quite, again, it's, it's people who aren't necessarily fat and don't have that, aren't experiencing weight stigma the same way these other people experiencing um, probably don't don't fully understand the complexities of weight um, and how different people what these these people essentially go through. So, it's like you mentioned that these policies have been around for a long time. It's probably I thought my reaction was it's not very surprising because you know we've we've seen this continued. Um, like you said, kind of like rehashing of things that have already been done and, you know, really trying to do the same thing, but slightly repackage it every time and expect a different outcome. 
because you're right that there there is there isn't um that to address the greater issues would be a much bigger cost and would probably you know in the UK we have a conservative government which means that you know they their policies and just their their kind of political stance in general is not really um geared towards as much as they would disagree it's not really geared towards equality in the same way that perhaps those who are more left-leaning would be and so I think do you think it's partly to do with that like you said that political thing of like the things that would potentially improve people's um health outcomes would be you know well I'm I don't know, but I presume it would be making sure more people have a living wage, make, you know, helping people out of poverty, giving people, you know, giving people access to various, um, you know, to, to good quality food, but also um, to green spaces and stuff like that. So I presume, well, you, you let me know what you think on that. So, I mean, well, there was, there was a re- recent analysis, I think it came out late last year, which was looking at these policies across spanning 30, 30 years. And during that time, we've obviously had a conservative majority. We've had a um, coalition government between conservatives and Lib Dems. And we've had a Labour government under under Gordon Brown and uh, Tony Blair uh, as well prior to that, uh, another conservative government. So, I mean, throughout those, the policies have largely been unchanged. So across the political spectrum, although you could arguably, arguably say there's there's no one that's really been left-leaning, particularly that much left-leaning within within government for, for a while, is that the policies tend to be neoliberal policies are aimed at the individual, aimed at changing behaviour, um, and the ones that aren't implemented are the ones that perhaps might have the biggest change. Um, I guess a lot of the time, I mean, in terms of economics, in terms of political policies over the years, I mean, since Ronald Reagan in the um, US and and Thatcher, uh, there's been a huge shift in terms of neoliberal policies. So like policies that which, again, focus on the individual, focus on reducing the welfare state um, and that, that focus on kind of letting the the market uh, make its own decisions and trying to interfere big government interfere as little as possible i mean obviously in terms of the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality that like yeah it is quite it's quite the case like that your meritocracy and the idea of social mobility and people pull up the bootstraps and you just need to work harder to to get out of poverty and so on and so forth and whilst obviously um in terms of if the economy has been growing um who receives that wealth is is largely kind of not distributed i wouldn't say even it wouldn't be distributed evenly anyway but it's not it's not necessarily distributed in a way that's fair in comparison to social democracies which perhaps have higher taxes um that um make sure that actually that people aren't necessarily being exploited in the same way that certain um, governments or, or or companies might might see fit. So, um, for example, things like large companies like Amazon and Apple, um, like and others that have, like during this pandemic have increased their wealth of the people that run them exponentially. Whilst there are lots of people who at the bottom. And who've who've suffered tremendous, like tremendously, um, and will likely suffer for generations. So their kids and their kids' kids will likely feel the effects of the inequality that, that's persisting. I mean, the gap between social inequality in the last ten years has increased. Like the the amount of time, the lower percentile spending poor health is is eighteen. I think it's about eighteen years more than those in the highest percentile and i think for there is a 10-year age difference in terms of mortality rate so um it's not just because these people are lazy less hardworking, or making poor decisions it's people making the best of what's available to them um 
I'm thinking about their priorities. You know, I was listening to another podcast about this the other day, and it wasn't even anything to do with like a health and wellbeing podcast. They were just having a general conversation. But you know, if your priorities are to literally make sure there's enough food to to be on the table, um, and to balance, if you have multiple jobs and you're trying to, you're a single parent and you're doing all these things, then you just need to make sure there's enough food on the table, and you know. You know, you don't probably have time to go and do the workout class that some people might be able to have the luxury to spend money on or or even be a member at gym because not only do you might not have the means to be able to do that, you probably don't have the time to do that. And so, you know, at a very basic level, we just kind of think that people have different priorities. Um, and, you know, when you're you know your basic needs aren't being met or you're struggling to meet your basic needs they are your priority yeah um yeah i definitely agree with that i mean there's a lot of like assumptions that that poor people or people low incomes can't can't budget where the opposite is true is that you're forced to budget you're forced to count every penny you're forced to make sure that every kind of bit of food is used to the as much as possible nothing goes to waste um but the reality is some people just can't get out of it whether it's due to debt whether it's other things um and once you get caught in this cycle it's very hard to kind of bootstrap your way out obviously there are exceptions to the to the rule but like i said the reality is that from obviously data it shows that there is a, a trend with regards to and it's not necessarily the fact that um the, the, these people are incapable it's it's everything like for example like interventions so physical activity interventions um or, or nutritional interventions are kind of more general they don't acknowledge the these disparities and, and what happens is is that those who have the capacity to change their behavior then change their behavior and improve their health or those who essentially don't have the capacity end up getting left behind and the the gap between poor health and good health between those between income percentage becomes greater um but the problem is that, that people don't either acknowledge that because they feel that like the physical effects aren't seen during it they're only seen as the aftermath so like health and people just make the assumptions that well, then like some people aren't engaging in life well, it's lifestyle behaviors or some people are a certain weight and that's why so on and so forth because i think i mentioned before that, that often like fatness and, and class are often sometimes intertwined and they're, they're stigmatized um in the same way because they're conflated because their conversations about poverty turn to well how are people fa- from a low income fatter because the old so trope so of, of that people yeah. with bodies are just greedy people and they've literally just eaten loads and loads of food and that's why they are in in their in a, in yeah. a body um but it's not <laughs> taking into account that if you're living in poverty and in a larger body that you're struggling to um have enough food on table i mean in the uk and i know in the us i've seen on the news queues and queues of people to food banks in the us like it's it it's been really heartbreaking to see and similarly in the uk we've seen a massive rise in the use of food banks so there are tons of people who do not have enough food on you know on their you know on their own that they they do need this extra help and so yeah it's frustrating sometimes when people want to really focus on one aspect when and, and it's easy because it's easier to focus on one aspect. So it's easier to go like, oh, it's just obviously this. And it's harder and more complex. And there's reasons people like you are doing PhDs in this stuff because there's not an easy answer to the, so there's, you know, there's not an easy solution for, you know, to, to improve um, everyone's health and well-being um, equally. And so we think, you know, so I presume maybe you're seeing as well, like some people need more help than, than others. Yeah, I mean, it's not, like, like you said, the, the, there is, it is complex. And as a consequence of that, it requires complex intervention. And there's no single kind of intervention. I think I, I think when people get into like fitness, I don't know whether you felt the same way, is that 
you really felt at the beginning, I felt at the beginning anyway, about really changing people's like lives in a way, like or changing the population and changing the world and so on and so forth. Where now I'm like, okay, I can have a positive impact, but how can then I then collaborate with people that, with different expertise to then solve more complex problems? I mean, for example, we take like physical activity and people are like, oh, you just need to subsidize gyms and subsidize PTs and stuff like that. I'm like, there is some some role to some extent that that might have an impact, but you've then got to address, well, things like whether facilities have appropriate, like crash facilities that, for people with, with young children, whether... There's accessibility um, needs, which, yeah, you know, we had, um, I did an episode last summer with Sophie Butler, who's um, a wheelchair user, and she's a personal trainer as well. And she just really highlighted to me you know, things that they're like these literal barriers <laughs> to people to not even be able to get inside a gym, you know, or not even be able to access equipment because it's all at the wrong, left at different, the wrong heights or whatever it is. So yeah, there's like, like you say, there's, there's things like childcare, but then there's also like literal physical barriers for people. Yeah. And I think that's like, obviously talking to people like Sophie, who really highlights kind of like all these issues and, and has first time so experience follow. i must encourage people to go and follow her she's at soph j butler on instagram and she does some brilliant work um and, and really informative posts on really highlighting uh disability especially in the fitness industry it's it's she does excellent work yeah yeah sophie is great um and i think like like people like her and others with, with different experiences i think there obviously needs to be some somewhat of a change in terms of like power dynamic and, and kind of the assumption that because you're qualified or have certain degrees or so that you that you know everything or you can solve everything when reality is there needs to be collaboration between people who use whether the interventions or facilities and so on and so forth and the people that perhaps run them um and i think there just needs to be that shift in the way that we, well, we understand of, of, of what health is and obviously understand with how we solve these problems, solve these problems and whether certain things are problems to be solved, um, whether that we do in or the ways in which we're trying to are doing more harm in good or that, that they've been done before. Um, and it's time for a different approach. Um, so can I just pick up on what you were saying there? Because I don't know if you were slightly alluding to the the idea that, um, you know, this idea, because there, there is a, there are people who say that, that we don't need an anti-obesity strategy, that we need, you know, we don't, that's, we, we can, you know, focus on helping people improve their health without having to specifically target this BMI group. Um, and yeah was that kind of was that something you were hinting at or something completely different or just that I would clarify I guess I was I was kind of more looking at the perspective like um when I think I spoke this in Laura's podcast a few one of the first ones I did with Laura Thomas um was that, that because you're um qualified or people come to you that you're the expert and that you're the oracle uh, that you know yeah the oracle that you 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 yeah dictate them or what I see on social media is particularly when it comes to things like weight and stuff like that they just they come without these these single answers or stuff like that or they shout like these terms like a like calorie deficit I mean people can like the the physiological principle like and the law of physics like of calories is remains the same but it's not a model of weight it that it fails to consider the social and structural and psychological impact that that or influences um and we kind of need to kind of look beyond that that mile that single kind of system as such or or we'll look at it look take a systems approach to things but i think following on from your comments is as whether that there should be a, a strategy at all I think the part of the problem is is the implications of these strategies and what tends to happen is is it's not just scientists and researchers are involved but it's 
politicians, policymakers. Um, and these people have very kind of perhaps strong ideas about uh, politics and what, what people feel they could or couldn't get away with. And this, what tends to happen is, is when you focus on, on, on weight, you tend to get the same type of policies that come out. So things that focus on physical activity and dieting, and they focus on the individual rather than structural factors. And we, every time we focus on weight or people say, for example, obviously in COVID where they said, oh, you need to tackle weight because of weight, the link between weight and COVID, which was kind of blown out of proportion to be fair. Um, and there was much, much stronger link between inequality and COVID. Um, but they have to, that they, they just kind of rehash these same things like, the better health campaign. I mean, it just looks like change for life. It's slightly different. It's not going to work. It's not going to have any impact. They'll say, oh, we can, some people found it beneficial. And that's fine. But on an individual level, you're not changing it whatsoever. Um, and it becomes that it's, from an economic point of view, it's a waste of time. From another point of view, it's, it's just hugely stigmatizing. Um, and it doesn't, and it just reinforces the idea that, that weight is purely an individual responsibility, that it's, it's inherently bad, um, and that actually these people, well, now these people, because they've not taken care of themselves, are the fault of why the UK have done so badly in terms of the pandemic, which is not true, I'd like to point out and make it clear, um, because policy decisions influence how well the UK stops it the idea of covid is you, you meant to stop transmission not not let everybody get infected and see like if their health's good enough they'll, they'll survive it it's not true so but i mean yeah we can i feel like we'll have this conversation in like 10 years time it, they'll, they'll probably produce another better another five six better health campaigns and they'll be all, they'll all look the same just slightly different branding um weight watchers will still get funding and so on and so forth, and they go from there. Um, so people can argue. Yeah, it was Sorry. quite promising recently to see that there was some acknowledgement of weight stigma by, uh, I think there was uh, like a government report created um, recently where it actually acknowledged weight stigma and it and it asked for a more inclusive approach to health. And I'd, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that. Do you think there are signs that that um, yeah, perhaps a more weight inclusive approach is being um, respected on on maybe given a little bit more um, yeah, maybe given a little bit more of awareness, if anything. I think even just raising awareness of of that. I mean, obviously they took the recommendations and then just did whatever they usually do, but <laughs> the recommendation was there, so. Yeah, is that a positive sign? Should should we feel maybe slightly hopeful? Um, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely been in, an increase in acknowledgement existence of of weight inclusive practices. I know there's, there's there's continuing emerging research. I mean, the question is a lot of times, I guess particularly with this government as well, is that a lot of reports are either produced that whether the impotent whether the recommendations are implemented. It's another story. So. There, there have been a number of race reports. So David Lammy did one and, and nothing kind of came from that. So, um, I mean, I'd say it, obviously it's, it's good to acknowledge weight stigma. Again, it depends how it's being defined. Often what tends to happen is, is weight stigma is discussed from a psychological or a medical point of view. Um, and it's, it's kind of very short-sighted view of what, what stigma is because stigma is essentially socially produced. Um, it's, it's built by our cultures and society. It's not, some, it's not a psychological issue, although it does have psychological effects. So what tends to happen is they acknowledge weight stigma, but then they might end up reinforcing it through, obviously, campaigns such as Better Health or Cancer Research Campaign about weight. Um, so, 
I mean, if if there are, it depends on what the recommendations are and whether they're implemented. We'll see. I mean, at least on, um, I guess there are more academics and more practitioners looking into it and more people exploring it and perhaps seeing the more it's available to people in different forms, whether it's online, whether it's through um, psychologists, therapists, whether it's through nutritionists or PTs, so on and so forth. I think more people will find who draw to that message will, will, will want to, will be glad there's something available that kind of speaks to them. Um, so it's positive in that regard. Um, I do think we shouldn't get into the trap though of kind of focusing purely just on behaviours and then kind of reinforcing inequalities again, which is sometimes what I see in terms of weight inclusive practices and messages that we talk about inequality um, a little bit and talk about social justice and then kind of have a wellness kind of vibe to weight inclusive approaches. I think it becomes really important not to lose sight of the way that structural factors are and rather than just going, Oh, like you can't change weight, but you can change your eating behaviors and your physical activity behaviors when actually these are also influenced by structural factors as well. Yeah, there's layers to privilege. You know, there's there's a privilege in being able to make those what we you know we we discuss this a lot on the podcast. We talk about health promoting behaviors, and that there's like we've kind of mentioned that there's a there's a privilege to whether you're able to do that or not. And so I agree. I think um, I, I I do agree that I think it's e like you know in in the same way it's easier to kind of rehash the same old policies it's sometimes easier to go like okay well there's these health promoting behaviors and we can try and doing this with the you know and you know i would say that a lot of my work is trying to help people reframe fitness to them but and and therefore so that so that more phys, you know greater physical activity would be a health promoting behavior right but I, I, I do agree that we need to think of that in the context of, of all these other things going on and that this that me saying that is gonna speak to some people and it's not gonna it, it's missing it's it's gonna miss others and that yeah, how and and we need people like you, people doing this research, people asking these big questions to go, well, how can we help? everyone in that intersectional way in that way where we're not just targeting one group all the time we're able to to think about other people's perspectives and I think that's so 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 important um this yeah well I suppose Jake um I'm conscious of time and I want to finish our chat today by asking you about your own train happy moment recently um because I suppose You've been doing your PhD, you've been training clients, and then I presume you've been doing some sort of stuff yourself? Yeah, so, I mean, I literally, I literally, as soon as the gyms reopened, I did go back to the gym. I mean, the difference is that I'm, I'm quite fortunate in the sense that it is a private facility that's got enough space, um, and sometimes you might, it's not crowded like commercial gyms and so on and so forth. Um, and because I grew up with them and I've known them, I've been involved in some way for so many years, it's always been a place that I've been kind of happy to return to, particularly after time off. So, I mean, it was so good to kind of pick up a barbell and different sets of dumbbells and just play about in that environment, not necessarily playing like in the garden or in a park or in the bedroom. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I guess that I would describe that as as my happy moment, mm. um, just because it's something that it's always kind of been something I've done that I've enjoyed, and it's just well, some just time to switch off um, as well. So yeah, just be, just doing things that I never got to do during lockdown. Um, what what did you do during lockdown? Did it completely? Did you completely have to pivot in terms of what you like the kind of gym based exercises that you're usually doing and and needing certain equipment that might not have been available to you? Did, was that kind of a bit of a bearing in mind you've worked in a gym for a decade? Was that a shock to the system to be like, oh, oh hang on a sec? 
Um, I mean, I've trained out, like I've trained outside before and with kind of like minimal equipment, and it's not been a huge issue. I mean, it did get to the point where I was kind of, I guess you're being in the same environment constantly where you sleep, eat, work in the same environment. Um, it was kind of not, it got tedious. So what tended to happen is, is my workouts were much shorter. So I literally did like 15, 15 minutes, like here, yeah, slightly more frequently because I could recover, but something that I wanted to feel like I could move my body and then just be kind of done with it. Um, so it got to the point where I guess I wasn't enjoying it as much mm. as like a traditional gym, but it was enough to kind of elevate my mood and make me feel good that I've done something. I did actually take up running and I thought like people, people, that kn- people that know me were like, whoa, because <laughs> I always said that I, you'd never catch me running. Yeah. And I'd absolutely hated it. And ever since I, I broke my leg, there are times where like um, just doing it, just doing it, like my ankle would seize up. And so I just kind of tend to avoid it. And then it got to the point that I was kind of running twice, twice a week. And I was like, oh my God, am I starting to enjoy it? <laughs> so, which to be, so to be fair, a little bit. pandemic's changed you. Well, yeah, so to degree, has changed all of us. Um but I mean, yeah, I was like, actually, I don't, I don't mind it anymore. I haven't, haven't been in a while for, but just due to, due to time. But I did actually just, it, I guess that was the other thing, pandemic, maybe explore different ways to move. Mm. Um, and whilst actually things, the assumptions that I made previously, um, whilst it was a challenge and, and, and very hard in the beginning, is something that changed that my outlook that I started to enjoy it which I guess would be what other people I say to other people is like, I'd say give it a bit of time if you don't enjoy something straight away to kind of figure out and get your feet in and then find out whether you do enjoy it or not. Um, yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I, I know that for me, like being exactly as you said, working at home, living at home, sleeping at home, eating at home, it was so uninspiring for me to move. And I was, you know, fortunate that I was, I, I, I said, I'll do live workouts because just so I got myself moving as, as a motivation and something fun and different to do. And that was really helpful for me. But my goodness, I've just loved being back again, being able to teach classes. I love, I've just realized I really love spinning. I love it. Music to the bike, everything. I just love it. And I didn't have access to that the whole time and it was really hard and having to find these different things to do. Um, so yeah, I, but it's nice to know we've got backup plans now. Yeah. <laughs> we've got plan I mean, B's and plan C's and plan D's. <laughs> I mean, there's always a way, but like you said, there's just certain, certain environments. I mean, I always, always say that it isn't just kind of the type of activity, activity you do, it's the environment you're, you're in. Mm. And like you said, like, there are some people who might afford like spin bikes at home or like pelotons or so on and so forth or their alternatives and get a kick out of it. But there's some that probably enjoy the buzz of just being a purpose-built room for spinning mm. um, with just kind of either lights or just a bit of energy and like, I don't know, whether or even people as well. And not just Jake, you'll have to different. come to class. You'll have to come. I'll hold you to it. <laughs> I'll give it a go. Yeah, I can I can see you now doing if people were in my class this morning, we were all singing and everything. I can just see it now. Yeah. It's totally being right. Okay. <laughs> sure. Um, Jake, it's been an absolute pleasure. Where can people find find you um and, and follow your work and your progress through your PhD? So I mean you can find me on Instagram at the fit coach. So it's P H I T. Um the same on Twitter. Um, I do need to get back into the habit of, of communicating a little bit more on there. Because um, when yeah. you do, you're super informative and it's and it's really helpful. So um, yeah, if you want to continue these deeper discussions, then you can find them in your Instagram comments and in Twitter feeds. Yeah, yeah this is great. Yeah, there are people who do that predominantly. Um, and it's like, well, from there you can get in the various links to, to articles that I've written um, as well if people are interested. Um, and that's predominantly where you can find me. 
amazing i'll link all of that below in the show notes for um people who do want to find you but it's been a real pleasure thank you so much jake thanks sally thanks for having me it was great And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. 